I'm going to pray because we want to pray anyway because we want God's Word to penetrate our hearts. But as you know, I'm a teacher, so basically what I do, the, God, what the gifting God's given me is to take things apart, explain them so that you can walk away from here with a greater understanding of who God is, what God's done for you, what the Word of God says that you can take it home and apply it in your life. But I was praying for this week and for what to do, say today and talk about today. I really felt the Lord prompt something in my heart that... that and he keeps telling me, don't teach this because to teach, you've got to go into your head. There's some things that just have to go from heart to heart. And this is one of those things. And so we'll just trust God is how it's going to come out. But there's something that God wants to touch your heart with this morning. And that's what we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with. So, Lord, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the Spirit of God. For our, and our adequacy is in Him. It's not in ourselves. And Lord, there's something that you've put in my heart and deeply touched my heart about that I believe that you want to impart into all of our hearts today. And that's not done through my mind and my understanding, but it's done solely by the anointing of your Spirit. And so I yield to him to, as best I know how, allow him to speak through me and through your word that you may touch our hearts. And we pray this morning, Father, that every heart would be open for what you would put into it. Father, each one of us may need to see something slightly different, but we ask you of the spirit of the living God to do that. We tell you that we love you this morning. We thank you that you've loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son to die in our place. Help us today to have a greater understanding in our heart not with our mind, but in our heart of what you have done for us and how much you love us. We thank you for that, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Us, it's, it's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and you know, I had somebody first service said, are you going to preach a resurrection message this morning, a Resurrection Sunday message? I said, well, in a sense it is, but I'm going to go back two days. We're going to talk about what happened on Friday, which is what had to take place before we get to Sunday. We're going to talk about something this morning that you don't hear a lot about in church anymore, and we need to be called back to it. And we've grown and we've matured, and there are other things in the Lord, but we can't ever forget what the foundation of our faith is. When I was um, a little boy, well, when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, um, I would, not just then, but I would go with my grandmother when I was with her um, to Good Friday services. And the church that we belonged to at the time had Good Friday services. And, and one that they would do is between 12 and 3, you would sit and you would go through the different words that Jesus spoke on the, from the cross. There'd be a little teaching on that. There'd be maybe some music. And then there's some tight, quiet time of prayer and of meditation. And I remember so vividly sitting in one of these, when I was on vacation, I guess it was a school vacation, with her, and I can, I can see it as if I were there today, taking all this in. Now, we, she wasn't saved. I wasn't saved. To my knowledge, nobody in our family was saved at that point. And, uh, but we were very religious. And I'm sitting there saying, they call this Good Friday, and all I've heard about is Jesus dying and suffering on a cross. What's good about it? How is that good? And the other thought I remember from those times is, why didn't you just come off the cross? Why didn't you prove to everybody on the cross who you were? Why did you just, I mean, they, they were saying, you know, if you're, the, if you're the Son of God, walk off that cross. Now, let me ask you a question. Could he have done that? Yes. 
Absolutely. So he chose not to for a reason. You find First Corinthians chapter one. See what bothered me about the cross is that it, it, it's a place of defeat. It's a place of failure. I mean, understand from his disciples' point of view. They had they were they were Jews, and the Jews were raised on the scriptures and the prophecies that God was going to send a Messiah, a deliverer, because almost every book in the Old Testament points to a Messiah or a deliverer, and they had their own expectation of what he would be. They were living under the dominion of Rome, terrible bondage that the Roman Empire had come in, and they literally, you know, they, they were under fear of Rome, and, and some of what we're going to talk about later on ties into that also. So they had this expectation, the Jews of his day had that expectation, in fact every generation had a hope that they were going to be the generation that saw the Messiah. And back when Jesus was first born, Simeon who was in his, in the, his parents' uh, synagogue prophesied over him, recognizing that I've been waiting to see him and I've now seen my deliverer. So there was this expectation, but the problem was they had an image of how he was going to be and what he was going to do. And they saw him as a delivering, conquering, overcoming Savior that was going to deliver Israel. And all they could think of is the political oppression they were in. And they, therefore, their expectation was that the Messiah was going to deliver them from this political and this, this, this uh, terrible bondage that they were in to the Roman Empire. And, and I mean, they had, you know, and we've all, we're all guilty of this. You take one here and one here, and we put them together and come up with two. That's, that's high-level math for those of you who couldn't follow that. <laughs> and we do that. We connect dots on, you know, the old game, you know, the pictures where you, you know, you'd have a, the part of this, this thing would go up here, and then you'd have, you know, one, two, three, four. Anybody ever do that? And you'd go one dot to two to three to four, and you look, oh, hey, it's, a, yeah, it's a duck. It's a duck's head or something like that. So our mind wants to draw meaning and connect things together, and that's what they had done. The problem was they didn't read all the scriptures correctly and we're going to see the one that they missed in a few minutes. So they had this expectation that he was the deliverer, that he was going to set them free. They'd watched him perform incredible miracles. They'd seen, the, the, they'd seen their own authorities try to destroy them. They'd been with him when he'd gone back to his hometown and he got up and declared that he was the Messiah and then he then insults them and says the prophet is not, the Old Testament says a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. In other words, you're not going to respect me for who I was and indeed they didn't. They got so mad at him they picked up rocks to stone him to death and they, they watched, the disciples watched him walk through the crowd. They watched him when they were on a ship several times in storms and they saw him come to the bow of the ship when it was about to sink and put his hand out and say, peace be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. They saw him another time when he sent them on ahead and a terrible storm comes up and they think they're going to sink and they're afraid and they watched him walk on the water to go by them. And then they saw him take one of their own out on the water and walk with him. They saw him raise the dead. Nothing could stop him or nothing could hinder him. And they had a tremendous sense of confidence. And they come on this Passover Sunday week into Jerusalem 
And they have this incredible reception where the people pour out at the gates and they're laying palm leaves down at his feet and he's riding on a colt. He's riding on a donkey coming into the city and they're crying out, Hosanna, which means God saves. And he is the subject of everybody in the city and they're praising him and worshiping him and the disciples' hearts have to be just so filled up. Oh, this is wonderful. It's going to happen soon. Within just a matter of days, what looked like it was the culmination of everything they'd hoped for suddenly begins to go sour. And events begin to swirl around them and begin to get out of control. And then there's this night and Jesus is saying strange things like I'm going to leave you and and I'm not going to leave you as orphans and they're struggling with this because they don't want to hear it. And then that event's night they go out into this garden and he's praying there and, and they're troubled because of the fact that he's so troubled. And he gets up from prayer and they come out and soldiers now approach them. And I'm sure they're expecting him to just walk right through. I mean, actually in John's account, when the soldiers come up to them and he says, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. They all fall down. Wow, what power. Obviously, he's going to walk through them like he walked through the people back home. But instead, things get out of control. And they begin to grab him and arrest him. And they're saying, how can this happen? And they take him into a trial. Peter goes down to watch the trial. And Peter's losing his confidence now because they're just hours before he had tremendous confidence. Now he's losing his confidence because his leader's arrested and being tried on a mock trial that was illegal. It was illegal under Roman, it was illegal under Jewish law to hold a trial at night. It's a trumped-up trial. It's a kangaroo court with witnesses that have been paid off to lie. And they see this going on, and they figure at some point, he's going to do something to to walk out and take off the Clark Kent suit and put on Superman and come out and, you know, overcome. But it doesn't happen. And it goes from bad to worse. He's brought out to a public trial. And Pilate's trying to let him off. And the same people that were praising him only days later are now crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But that can't possibly happen. I mean, we know he's the son of God. He'll walk out and we know he's going to turn this at some point. But he doesn't. He allows himself to be taken down to that terrible place where they beat them. The first thing that they did was they beat them with rods. They were like bamboo sticks. They were called mastigos, and that was to soften them up. Then they would tie their hands to a post, and the skilled Roman soldier would take a whip that was made up of a series of strands of leather into which were tied pieces of bone and rocks, and he would use that across their back and flick it to take little pieces of flesh off. And the result was that they would lose blood and they would often collapse and many of them didn't survive that process. And then they'd bring them out and they would take, if they survived that, they would take a beam about six feet long and they would strap it to their shoulders with their arms over it and they would make them carry that out to their place of execution. It's called a crucifixion.
Let's read what Paul says here. And then we'll pick up on that account. Verse 18. Well, verse 17. For the Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom. Now, Paul was highly educated. If you were to bring him over into our culture today, it would be as if Paul had a degree of divinity from Harvard Divinity School and from Yale Divinity School, that he would have done his postgraduate work, his graduate, he had a doctor in divinity. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the most prestigious rabbi of the day, and that's how they learned at the feet of a rabbi. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 goes through some of his credentials, and we talked about some of those before. So was Paul capable of teaching and explaining the gospel with words of wisdom, with great understanding of theology, and theology is important. Those kinds of studies are important. But it's interesting what the Apostle Paul says is really important. He said, I did not come with words of wisdom. So we see he was capable of it, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So what he's saying is, if I relied upon my wisdom to win you, then the cross of Christ would be of no effect in your life. See, it's important to understand what your beliefs are based on. Is your confidence in God, is your confidence in your relationship with God, and your confidence in your standing before God based on your wisdom and your knowledge and how much you know? Or is it based on something else? Look what Paul says. If I did that, then I wouldn't run the risk that the cross of Jesus Christ would be of no effect in your life. So he's saying the cross is to have an effect in your life that's far beyond any knowledge or any wisdom or anything else you can gain or anything anybody else can teach you. The cross of Jesus Christ. Well, let's go on. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's foolishness to them because they don't understand it. How can an old wooden cross over 2,000 years ago have an effect today? How can a piece of wood that's long gone have an effect in 2011 in your life or my life? But that's exactly what Paul's saying. The wisdom that they wanted to rely on and not the wisdom is bad because he goes on and talks about a wisdom. But if your relationship with God, if your standing before God is based on your understanding of something, then there's no power in that. There's no power in understanding to change your life. Most people that are struggling with some kind of bondage understand that they're in bondage. All their understanding and analysis and study doesn't get them out of it. And a lot of the efforts of the world has to try to help us get delivered from things that hold us down are part to give us greater understanding of what it is that holds us down, but it doesn't have the power to deliver you. 
It's like if you get your car stuck in the snow and you're, you know, and you're spinning your tires, just getting out deeper in the snow. You know, you can have a great understanding of the need for snow tires or chains. You can have a great understanding of what's happening when those wheels are spinning, but that understanding doesn't get you out of that snowbank. You need something stronger than you to come along, hook under your bumper, and pull you out of what you got into that you can't get yourself out of. That's where the power is. And Paul says all the wisdom can help you to understand the power, but wisdom doesn't have power in it. This is written by a man who had the wisdom. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the cross, is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, never came to a knowledge of God. Man, by his own brain, cannot begin to grasp God. Oh, I talked about that on Wednesday night. Man, by his brain, cannot begin to grasp God. When I was in college, and I wasn't saved at the time, I decided that I wanted to pick my major based on something that would help me to learn how to live my life. I really was sincere. And so I looked around and I chose philosophy. I didn't have a lot of other people that chose it with me. But I chose philosophy because I really wanted to study how other people had wrestled with this same issue. So that was my major. And I spent two years going through from... Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all those guys all the way up to modern existentialism and all that wonder and they all had different approaches, different ideas and at the end of two years of intense study I came to the conclusion they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> I suspected that when I started but now after two years I knew it because I'd read what they'd written. I didn't understand why they couldn't figure it out because I hadn't figured it out yet either. Because apart from God, you're not connected to truth. So all you've got is what your own mind can conjure up and now analyze. And the human brain is not capable, as I talked about Wednesday night, the arrogance that the human mind can decide whether God exists or not. Do you know that there are entire churches now that are organized around atheism? That's considered, that they're trying to get that considered a religion. Imagine a church organized around nothing around what you don't believe in. This is what we have in common. We don't believe something. What do you worship? Because there's nothing to worship because you don't believe it. But that's how foolish we get to apart from God. That's how foolish our brain is capable of being. I mean, some of the brightest people I've ever known and have worked with, including my stepfather. I won't go through that story again. I did Wednesday night. His life ended up as a disaster. He's the most intelligent, highly educated man I've ever known. Because he couldn't grasp that there was a God. Wow. That's what Paul's talking about. It's foolishness that a cross 2,000 years ago, well, how can that affect my life today? 
What we're going to talk about today is the power of the cross. The power of that old rugged cross. 2,000 years ago has so much power and what happened on that cross, it can change and deliver your life today. The power of the cross. Well, let's finish what Paul was saying here. Verse 22, the Jews request a sign. The Greeks are seeking after wisdom. We don't give them that. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's just foolishness. That a dead man can change your life and set you free. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than any man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Go down to chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Go down to verse 6. However, we do speak a wisdom among those who are mature, those who are saved. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, for they are co- who are coming to nothing. But we speak a wisdom that comes from God in a mystery, hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Look at this. Which none of the rulers of this age, he's talking about spiritual beings, none of the rulers, demons of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I saw a TV program. I didn't watch it last night. Who killed Jesus? Let me ask you a question. Was it the Jews who brought him to the Romans? Was it Pilate? Was it the Roman soldiers who drove the nails? Who executed Jesus? His father did. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. How can the death of a man have power in it. I could understand if he jumped off the cross and he showed them who he was at the time, that there's power in that. Yes, there is. It would have proven who he was. But where would have left you and me? Where would the power have been for us in 2011? It would have demonstrated his power, but would have not done any, shown any of that power for you or me. Colossians, don't have to turn there. Oh, excuse me, Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 14 says, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I won't boast of anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. So where is the power? Why is there power in an old piece of wood? Why is there power in the death of a man over 2,000 years ago? Why is there power in a man who in the natural looked like he failed, he was defeated? Why is there power today in all that that happened historically over 2,000 years ago? Well, let me tell you where the power is not. 
because I want to focus in on where the essence of this power is. The cross means many things to us that are wonderful, many things we could spend time teaching on. It's the proof of God's love for us. For God so loved the world. Uh, that was my message a couple of years ago. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it's evidence of how far God's love extends towards you and me that He would give His own Son's life in our place. So it's evidence of His love and that's exactly true. That's the gospel that's wonderful. But that's not where the power is for you and me. The cross can also be used as an example for how we're to commit our lives to Christ. Jesus used an example. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, then you've got to pick up your cross, your place of death to yourself, and follow me. But the power Paul's talking about is not in the cross as a symbol to you and me of our sacrifice that we have to make of our commitment, nor is it the power just in the in the, in the proof that it is how much far God, far God would go to love us. Because we're talking about the, not something that's, that's a principle, we're talking about something that affects your life today, sets you free today, delivers you today, works in your life today, is your courage and strength today. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the tow truck that pulls you out of the snow or the mud that you got yourself stuck in. The power of God, the power of God, the power of God is in the power of the cross. The power of the cross. That's what Paul says. Well, let's look at that. These are wonderful examples. They're all true, but they don't display for us the power of the cross. Go with me to Isaiah 53. While you're turning there, let me complete this description of what happened on the cross. A cross, and sometimes it was literally a cross. Sometimes the cross piece was stuck on top, so it was a T. Sometimes it was just a pole. This method of execution was devised by the Phoenicians earlier, picked up by some other cultures and perfected by the Romans who were very cruel. And the Romans would use this as not just a method of, of execution, but they used it as an example that would horrify anybody that saw it because they wanted to impress on people's minds and fear that they, not to fool with Rome, that it was an absolute power and you didn't fool with them. This method of execution was reserved for people that had committed the most serious crimes, treason, uh, murder, certain types of theft, and all in the, of that level. And as I began to describe earlier, they would take them, first of all, to a, that place where they would beat them and then they would, they would whip them, uh, and that's called scourging. And your, their body would go into shock from the pain and the loss of blood. Uh, imagine what, you know, when, you, when you pull a hangnail, did you ever do that? That's just a tiny little piece. And then they would have to carry this beam, and it was always outside the city. 
because they wanted, usually it was on the road into the city so that people coming into the city would have living displays of what it was like to disobey the Roman authority. And they would bring them out to that place. They would lay them down. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but this is literally what happened, is they would take nails about seven or eight inches long, big iron nails. They didn't drive them in the hands because the hand couldn't hold you up. They drove them in the wrist at a particular point, both wrists, and then they would lift you up on this crop. Sometimes they would tie your arms, lift you up, and then the Roman method is they would take a, a block of wood at an angle like this, and they would put it on the, stri- the, the vertical piece. They would lay one foot over the top, and they would nail your feet into that piece. And here's how crucifixion was intended to work. Somebody that went through that full process of dying, they didn't die because of loss of blood because they knew where to drive the nails so that you didn't bleed. If you bled to death, you bleed quickly. They didn't want you to bleed to death. You died in a crucifixion by suffocating. So how could you suffocate? Because here's what would happen. Your arms are out. Ever hold your arms out for a while? They get heavy and tired. But imagine if not just holding them out, you're holding yourself up by these arms like this. What will happen eventually is the muscles in your chest become so tired they can't expand and you breathe by expanding your chest. So what happens is the pain so great you against you get a point where you're having trouble breathing. So to relieve that, what you do is you push up on the block of wood to relieve the pressure on your arm so you can take a deep breath. The moment you do that, you hit the nerve in your foot and the pain shoots through your body so you go back down again. So it's this constant process of up and down and up and down until your body passes out and they wake you up again and you go through it again. It would often take, listen to me, two to three days in that agony before eventually the chest muscles gave out, fluid would begin to develop in their lungs, and they would, they would basically asphyxiate. They would suffocate or asphyxiate. And, 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 and because if you read the account in Jesus' execution, the two men that died on either side of him, because it was the evening of the, before the Passover, they had to end the process. They couldn't let it go through the whole process, so they broke their legs. Remember that? Because if they broke their legs, they could no longer push up. Now they're just going to die. They're going to just asphyxiate right away, and that's what happened to them. They came to Jesus, and they discovered Jesus was already dead. So they stuck a spear in his side, and the Bible is very clear. What came out, first of all, was water, then blood. That's some evidence that what had happened is, is that the heart, the, the, the bag that's around your heart that supports your heart had burst because water came out first and then the blood came out first. So Jesus was already dead. Now I share that with you because of the agonies is important for us to understand. A number of years ago, Mel Gibson did a movie that's very well known called The Passion of the Christ. And it's a very difficult movie to sit through. But I remember the first time I saw it, I did not want to go. I was afraid to go. I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to sit through all that, but I knew I had to see it. And I walked out of there saying that's the most important movie I think that's ever been made. As horrifying as it was to watch, he went through that for me. He went through that for me. Now let's look at what happened. Now, as I excuse me, when I was as I was sharing with you. The Jews knew the Messiah was coming. They were expecting him to come, but they thought he was going to deliver them from the power of Rome. 
there's a, and they were basing this on prophecies that they read and, com, and connecting that with their oppression they were in. So they thought that was what he was going to deliver them from. They missed a very important part of Scripture, which is Isaiah 53. And that's what we're going to read part of today because it tells us from God's perspective what happened on that cross. And this is where the power comes from. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man, I'm just going to read literally what the New King James says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with Greek, literally with, with Greek, with grief. Literally, it's a man of sicknesses, of pains, and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him or value him. But here's where it comes from. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. So it says, we saw him. This is by prophetic vision. We saw him, a man from whom we turned our faces away, because we saw him, a man acquainted with grief. In other words, he was in agony. And we couldn't face it, so we turned away. But now he's explaining what agony he was carrying. But surely, it was our griefs he bore and our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It's God that put this on him. God put on him this agony and this pain and sickness and disease and sorrow and suffering and shame. God put it. You go down to verse 10, it said it pleased the Father to bruise him. Wow. Either God is a child abuser or a sadist, which we know he's not. Or listen to me carefully. It doesn't just say he did it, it said it pleased him to do it. In order to please him to do it, the agony that the father must have gone through in doing this to his son must have been surpassed so far by something that was bringing him pleasure that you accounted it as a net pleasure to him, not a net loss. You follow me with that? So as hard as this was on the father's heart, as much as it pained him and grieved him to do this to his son, something was going to come out of this that so far surpassed the grief that was going to give him joy and pleasure that he pleased him to do something. And what that was, was you. What that was, was you. What's this all about? The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. Well, let's go on and read the next verse. I'll show you. It's in here. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's a fancy word for sin. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. 
all of us, all, we are like sheep. That's not a compliment. All of us, all of us are like sheep that have gone astray. Say, I'm going astray. You're in the all. Because all means all. Astray from what? I had an uncle who was a self-made man. He was raised in the, um, uh, grew up in the coal fields of western Pennsylvania. To my knowledge, nobody in his family generations before, I don't even think they finished high school. And he decided he didn't want that life. So he, and I think his brother later on, followed him, went to New York City. He got a scholarship to NYU and worked his way through college. He set out a, a pattern for his life, a plan for his life. A two-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year a plan, a 25-year plan. And he met every goal along that way. He ended up being a plant manager in West Virginia. He ended up being in charge of an entire division of a corporation over in England. And by the time he was finished, he was the, his, he was the second in charge of a major international global corporation. The only thing he didn't attain to was the office of CEO because by the time he got there, for political reasons, they put somebody younger and then he retired. He had his whole life organized, planned out, and he did everything he had planned to do. He had his own way, and he wasn't astray from his way. He accomplished his way. But his way wasn't necessarily God's way for his life. The astray we've gone is from God's way. Romans chapter 3 says, All of us have sinned and fallen short of the Well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. You gotta say, when I was a lawyer, I was a good guy. I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I didn't do things. I, I was an, I was an, it's hard to get these words out, but I was an honest lawyer. I was. And I thought I was pretty good because I compared myself to the people I was around. But see, God doesn't compare us with the people we're around. He compares us with Himself. And He's perfect. See, He's holy. And God's problem was, we've all sinned. See, it only takes one. It only takes one sin to make you a sinner. Adam's perfect example of that. One. And we do them all the time. I mean, the basic thing is, somebody's sitting on the throne of your life. There are only two possibilities, God or you. It's not a two-seater. God's not my co-pilot. So I'm the pilot seat and God's the pilot. He won't do that. There's one seat there and it's either he in that seat or me. And if it's me, I've gone astray. And that's an offense to a holy God who created me. See, God's not some distant being that you come along and discover someday and say, oh, there's a God. I wonder whether I should give my life to Him or not. I think I will, I will, I think I will bless Him by giving my life to Him. Oh, God, you're so blessed today. I've submitted my life to you. I mean, that's the arrogance we have. This is your Creator. 
He made you. He owns you. Because he made you. Not only that, he loves you. He's the one that's provided for you. He may not have done everything you wanted, but then again, you probably haven't done everything he wanted either. We won't go there, okay? But we think we do him some great favor. And we don't understand from his perspective, there's only one favor, and that's what he's given us. Every one of us deserves to be a grease spot on this rug. Every one of us, just by the attitude of pride in our heart. Pride is an offense to him. Because pride says, I'm important. The only thing I have, God's given me. And God's gracious with us and patient with us. But the point is this. Why did, why did Jesus have to do this? Why did Jesus, why did God have to lay on him the iniquity of us all? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We didn't just wander off. We offended him. Offended a holy God. Aren't you glad he's not like some of the Rhode Island drivers we have? when he gets offended. He doesn't get back at you when he's been offended. He takes that offense and he forgives it. But his forgiveness is not like we forgive. Suppose I just, without thinking, said something offhand to Mike. And Mike, I can tell by the look on his face, oh, I'm sorry, I offended you, didn't I? He says, yes. I said, would you please forgive me? And Mike because I know Michael said, sure, Pastor, I forgive you. And between us, it's, it's gone. But you see, our sin didn't just offend God, so he just says, I'll forgive you. The Bible tells us there's a penalty for that sin. And the penalty is death. Not physical death. Spiritual death. Spiritual death is to be eternally separated from the source of life. And God is the source of life. There's a scripture in Ephesians talking about the Gentiles before they came to Christ. They say you were, they were without God and without hope in this. Without God, there is no hope in this world. He is the only hope. And without Him, there's no life. We talked a little bit about that on Wednesday night. So our sin separated us from God because He's holy and righteous and sin and holiness cannot dwell together. One of them is going to go and guess which one it is? Yes. It's not Him. Right. But because He loved you so much. See, our idea of forgiveness is God just looks the other way. God, I'm, I'm really sorry. That's okay, son. Go ahead. It's okay. Because that's what we tend to do with our kids. I mentioned the first service. There's a verse in Romans chapter 5 which says that, 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 that no, Romans, yeah, it says that he is the just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. See, if he just looked the other way, said, look, I know you messed, I know your heart, you tried hard, but you messed up. It's okay. We'll just forget it this time. Then he could issue forgiveness, but he would no longer be righteous. And we'd all be in trouble. He would have compromised who He is to come down to where we are. Instead, He can't compromise who He is. So what He did is He came down to who we were 
at still that same standard, and he took upon himself your sins. And it says transgressions, but let's get down to what it is. S-I-N. It's sin. Some churches don't want to mention that word, but it's sin. And the reason I want to mention the word is they don't think there's an answer for it. But the answer for sin is the cross. There is a way out of it. There's a way to be free, and it's the cross. Because he took your sins and my sins on his own son on that tree. And then God's anger and wrath for your sin, he poured out on his son on that tree. So God's not angry anymore. His anger has been vetted for your sin on his son on that tree 2,000 years ago. And that's where the power is. Because the power is he paid for the consequence of your sin. Hebrews chapter 2. No, no, excuse me, Colossians, let's go look there. Colossians chapter 1, 2. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 11, verse 13. And you being dead in your, trans, in your trespasses, that's sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means no relationship with God. He made you alive together with Him, and how could He make you alive together with Him? Having forgiven all your sins. And He didn't do it by just looking the other way. Having wiped them out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us. Now, I'm a former lawyer. I'll put it in not legal terms. There was an indictment against you and me. A list of every count of everything you've ever done wrong. Because God keeps records. And He took the entire record of everything you've ever thought wrong, said wrong, or done wrong. And he took that account and he nailed them on the tree with his son. And the word there in the New King James is wiped out. But the Greek word means to eradicate. I've paid a number of notes off or loans off in my life. And they always send you the note back stamped paid in full. But you can still read the terms of the debt. This word means as if you took acid and poured it over the face of the note so although the note's in your hands there's no record anymore of the offenses that were charged against you why because they're eradicated by the blood of the lamb hanging on that cross it's his death that gave you life that's how there's power in his death because he wasn't, he didn't die with any sin in himself. Understand this, that when he died, it goes on to say, and he stripped the, per, the, the principalities and powers. He literally went down into the place of death. Because if he didn't, you're going there. And for, a, for several days, there was a party going on down there. Because Satan finally had the one he was after. Because he had him legally. Because he died with sin. But when the price had been paid, 
the spirit of the living God came into that place and made him alive again because the Bible says he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And the one who was dead comes alive in the place of death. And I'm sure Satan stood up and said, no, this is, you can't do this. He said, because I have you legally here. You die, have you here, because you died in sin. And Jesus says, there's a minor technicality you've overlooked. None of that sin was mine. Now here's what happened. Therefore, therefore, So he's alive. He's now making it. Says it made a public show of them. He didn't do that in Jerusalem. He did that in the place of death. Grabbed the keys, which was the authority. Took them in his hands, and he blew out of there. But wait a minute. He came in there with sin. He's made alive. He leaves. Where's your sin? It's still down in there. Paid in full. And that's what Hebrews 2 says. Well, let's take a moment and read it. Hebrews 2. The power of the cross. 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 Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise share in the same that through death, he, now listen to this, through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were their whole lifetime subject to bondage. Bondage comes from Satan. And Jesus destroyed his power when he died for your sins because the power of Satan in your life is through sin. The power, the entrance, the hold that Satan has in your life, whether you believe in him or not, he's real because Jesus believed in him. The power that he has in your life to bring bondage of any kind is through sin. And the victory and the freedom from that bondage is the sin you've committed has been paid for. Colossians 1.13 says he's delivered us from the dominion of darkness yes. and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been set free. By the death of somebody 2,000 years ago on that cross. Sin 
is the problem. We can psychologize it, psychoanalyze it, theorize it, theologize it, whatever eyes that you want to do. <laughs> I remember when I was a young, when we were married and just starting to have kids, I wasn't saved yet. There was a, there was a popular uh, a book out, and it became a movement. And some of you may have been part of it. The book was entitled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Yes. Anybody read that book? I read that book, and I, mean, I was smart enough to read it and just laugh. Because the, the essence of the book is we just, Joe, you're okay. Now tell me I'm okay. okay. See, we're, we both agree we're okay. I don't have a problem, you have any problem, right? We're, we're both okay. The problem was down inside, I know I'm not. And so it's a mental way of trying to get rid of the guilt. Because I know I'm not, it wasn't okay. As good as I was. I still wasn't okay. So it was, a, it was attractive because it's a way to make us feel better with the guilt. Because you've got to deal with the guilt somehow. Some people try to hide it with alcohol or drugs, numb themselves to it. Some people play mental games. Some people get into existential meditation. And what they're trying to do is get away from themselves. Because they're guilty inside. There's only one way to get rid of the guilt once and for all. It's to take the guilt to the cross where it's already been paid for. God has provided a way out. Why find something else some man's come up with? Why not take what God's provided? Because it's the only thing that works. Because it's the only thing God endorses. set you free and to deliver you. I'll end with a story. It's my own story. I, I, I was raised, as I've told most of you, in a very intellectual family. We were very they were highly educated. Uh, you know, I was, I was the least intellectual of them, but at least I was in that atmosphere. And it was, became a real stumbling block to me when I was, when I was wrestling with the gospel and what all these meant. And I'd read my Bible every night and it didn't mean anything to me. And, and I got a doctorate degree and I can't understand it. So it wasn't a matter of wasn't in, I wasn't smart enough or educated enough. I wasn't alive in here. But I was under conviction. I just, I knew something was wrong. And I, I remember sitting in a Christmas Eve service with a candlelight service and my wife was home wrapping packages and doing the, the last minute stuff and I just wanted to be in church and I walk in there and I'm sitting there and I don't think, to my knowledge, anybody in this church was saved because this is the church we went to. And I'm sitting back there, and I start crying. I didn't cry in those days. And I don't mean here. I mean it's welling up. I'm losing control. of my. I don't know what's going on inside of me. And I get in my car as fast as I can and drive home with tears in my eyes, burst in the door. She says, what happened to you? And I just fall apart. I don't, God was working in me, and I was running as fast as I could from him. Well, one night, I'm in our living room. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning, and the kids and my wife are all in bed, and I can't handle this anymore. And I finally said, I, this, is how, this is the great words of faith I had. Jesus, I don't know if you're real. I really don't know if you're real. I just can't go on any longer without knowing one way or the other. So if you're real, you can come into my heart if you want to. But see, he'll take you where you are. 
and they opened the door that much. But that's all it took because all he was looking for was an opening. And I'm telling you, he flooded inside of me. And I'm still in my, I'm still in my, in my, in my three-piece suit, except without the coat. I still got my vest on, you know. And I'm jumping around the room saying, he's real, he's real, he's real, he's real. That was over 33 years ago. He's still real. See, on that cross, he paid for the sins of the world. Whether you ever come to him or not, your sins have been paid for. But you don't get the benefit of it unless you receive the free gift that he's given to you. You can't pay for it. It's been paid for 2,000 years ago, but you still got to go pick it up. Ever come home and you find a slip from FedEx or something? Said there's a, we tried to deliver this package. There have been some of you you've been left a lot of slips for. And you got them sitting on your dashboard. I'll get around to it someday. You don't know when the last slip is. You still got to go pick the package up. You don't pay for it. It's been paid for. He's tried to deliver it. That's why you got a slip. But you've got to receive for this power to work in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've loved us so much that with all our faults and sin, you could have just gone on and started over with somewhere else with a new species of being. But you didn't quit on us. You loved us so much that you sent your own son to go through that horrible death and take upon himself all the agony and shame and guilt that we earned, he took upon himself that we might be free from guilt and shame and from bondage. Thank you for loving us that much. Continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we would really truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room or the sound of my voice that hasn't taken the slip to you and picked up the gift that you have for them. That today they'll see and understand what you've done for them and how critical it is that they receive Jesus today. Thank you.